Last week we finished with the kingdom is not yet and is now, so we did the last part of chapter 11 and then 12. And I told you last time that we did it out of sequence according to the outline. And the reason for that is that we're going to do Luke 16 this evening. Luke 16 starts with the parable of the dishonest manager. And you really need that to understand the conversation that follows about money. Besides which, it's one of my favorite parables. So we'll start with Luke 16. And God willing, we may just get all the way through Luke 16 tonight. So Luke 16. He also said to his disciples, again, notice who he's speaking to. This is a parable for the disciples. There was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. There's going to be a bunch of questions that need to be answered as we go through this. First question that need to answer, and we'll answer this as we go, is, is the rich man, a good guy or a bad guy. For example, if you're of the opinion that the rich man is a bad guy and he's gouging his tenants and so forth, then reducing their rent becomes a virtuous act. I will tell you up front that neither I nor Bailey, who's one of the commentaries I read, believe that the rich man is a bad guy. He is simply a wealthy man that has a lot of property and he's got a property manager. And he's hired this property manager to manage his property. And he has received word from someone, we don't know who, that this guy is wasting his possessions. And if you take that in the context of what we talked about last week, where you have the master who goes away You've got a manager in charge of the master's stuff. And if the master comes back and finds his servants doing what they're supposed to do, he's, all right, very good. But the downside is that it's possible for the manager of his property to start partying and drinking and abusing the other servants. And if that's what he finds when he comes back, then that manager is going to be cut up and basically thrown into the compost pot. Take those two together. In neither case is the master a bad guy. He has put somebody in charge while he's off doing something else and comes back and finds that the one he has left in charge is not doing a good job. I mean, it could be as benign as burying the talent that he's been given because he's afraid and just wants to make sure that he doesn't lose anything. That's not good, but it's better than partying and getting drunk and abusing the other servants. And what we ended with last time is that a servant who knows what he's supposed to do and doesn't do it 
is going to get severe punishment as opposed to a servant who doesn't know exactly what he's supposed to do and also doesn't do it. He will receive a light punishment. So this guy got a rich man and he's been told that his manager that he's left in charge of his possessions is wasting them. So then he calls him and he says, you're going to turn in the account of your management. You can no longer be manager. So what he's saying is, go get the books. Bring me the books. This bring me the books presents the manager with a window of opportunity. Because until he goes back to the master with the books in hand, as far as anybody knows, he is still the property manager. It's an important detail. What the master has not done, which he could do, is he has not had somebody haul this guy off to prison and throw him in jail until he pays back all the stuff that he's lost. That's certainly a possibility. And if he had done that, there would be no opportunity for the manager to cook the books. The only two people that know that there's a problem at this point is the master and the manager. Everybody else is, okay, this guy's doing what he's supposed to do. Verse 3, And the manager said to himself, What shall I do, since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do, so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So, once he's lost his job, it appears to be the case that the only honest work that's going to be available to him is going to be menial labor or begging. He's apparently too old and not strong enough to go out and start doing manual labor. He's too proud to beg. So, what he wants to have happen is he wants to be a mooch. He wants to be able to travel around to people's houses and have them invite him in and stay for the weekend and those kinds of things. So his plan here is to set himself up to become a mooch, which is actually kind of in character. So, verse 5. So summoning his master's debtors, one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill, write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwelling. Now, let's talk about what's just happened. First off, obviously, you need to understand how the books are kept in order for this to make any sense. These farmers are sharecroppers. They lease the land, and they are very prosperous based on the amount of their debt the amount that we're talking about here of reduction indicates that these are very prosperous 
and well-to-do farmers. The way the books are kept is you have a contract and it says you get to farm this chunk of land this season and this is my share of the crops. The bill is written out in the tenant's handwriting and it is kept by the landowner. So if the landowner changes the contract, the tenant can look at that and say, that isn't my handwriting. I didn't do that. Similarly, if the tenant changes it, then the only way he can do that is if the owner brings it out of his desk drawer and they both sit down together and they make an agreement and then the tenant writes out the new agreement in his own handwriting. As long as the owner has the rental contract in his possession, it can't be changed by the tenant. And as long as it's written in the tenant's handwriting, it can't be changed by the owner. See how the system works. So that's why he needs these tenants to show up and change the bill because they're the only ones that can do it. Now the next question that you have to ask and answer is are the tenants crooked? Is there some collusion going on here between the manager and the tenants to cheat the master? Are these guys in cahoots? We're going to cheat the master and we're in on the deal. The answer is no, they're not in cahoots. And the reason for that is, look at the size of the rent. This is very prosperous farmers. If word gets back to the master that they are cheating him, they're going to lose their gig. He won't rent to them anymore. And finding tenant farmers to come in and work that land, which is obviously prosperous, is no big deal. So if they are in any way suspected of colluding with the manager to cheat the master, their deal is over. They go off and they have to dig ditches or beg because they got no land to farm which is why we started off by saying that there's a window of opportunity between the time the master says, give me the books, and the time that the manager shows up with the books. And that time period, he is still in the eyes of everybody in town, the manager of the property. So when he calls them in and says, write down however many measures of whatever, they think that he has authority to do that. Now, that takes you to one more question. Why would they take a, in one case 20, in another case 50% reduction? Why would they think that was not something out of the ordinary? It's sort of like you're renting an apartment and all of a sudden the apartment manager comes and says, I'm going to cut your rent in half. The difference between renting an apartment and renting land is that the production of the land is subject to weather, bugs, all of the things that can go wrong in farming. 
And I have never met a farmer that wasn't eternally pessimistic. Oh, I don't know if we're going to get enough rain. Boy, we don't get some rain, we're going to lose this. And that's sort of the mindset of most farmers. The manager has a job, and his job is to go around to the pieces of land that he manages and check and see how things are going. If it hasn't rained very much, or we've got a bad case of grasshoppers this year, or whatever, it's a really easy sell to a farmer saying, well, I don't think that the agreed price is quite right. Let's go ahead and reduce it a little bit here. That's his job. His job is to keep the tenant farmers happy is not quite the right word, but to make sure that the land is managed equitably and the master gets a fair return, as do the tenant farmers. That's his job. So when he comes to these guys and he says, that's really too much this season, because the contract gets written before the seeds are planted. So what may have seemed a really good deal when we planted seeds back in the fall for the first rain, by the time the winter wheat harvest comes around, may not look so good anymore. And it's his job to keep track of that. So he has got authority to do what he's going to do, except he really doesn't. But as far as the tenants are concerned, yeah, 100 measures of wheat sounded like a good deal back in the fall when we planted, but, eh, you know, you know how farmers are. So the farmers are not crooked. The master is not evil. And yet, what happens when he comes back is the master commends him. Why? <laughs> Think about it for a minute. This guy has acted without authority because once the master says, bring the books to me, your authority is terminated. So this guy has acted without proper authority. Yet the master commends him. Remember this setting now. The setting of all of these parables is country towns. This is not big city. These are country towns, agrarian towns. So, put yourself in the position of the tenant farmers. What do you suppose that they are doing once they've had their bills changed? They're talking. And they may even be going down to the local pub and buying around in honor of the master who has just dealt with them very fairly. Now, the master is entirely within his legal rights to say, uh, I've been defrauded. We need to put those contracts back because this rascal defrauded me. What's going to happen if he does that? Whereas before they thought 100 measures of wheat was perfectly fair, now that it's been reduced, it's not fair anymore. And for this guy to go in and change it back, whoa, that's not right. Even though he can explain, I was defrauded by my dishonest manager, it's still going to cause hard feelings within the village 
if he tries to recoup the changes. Whereas now, everybody's saying, wow, what a good master, what a good man. Been very fair with us. Let's all have a drink in his honor. So, why then is the dishonest manager being commended? I mean, he's just mousetrapped his boss. He's just cost his boss 50 measures of oil and 20 measures of wheat. So he's screwed him over on the way out the door. Why is he being commended? The comment was, these people are now going to take good care of you now that you're out of a job. That's true. Everybody thinks well of the master, okay. But the other thing that he knows is the character of the master. He has bet everything on his understanding of the character of the master. His understanding that the master will see the good report that he gets in the village as being more valuable than the amount of produce that he has just lost. So what he has got is a very accurate evaluation of the character of his boss. Everything that he's done depends on that character evaluation being accurate. Because if the boss turns out to be a, a bad guy, then the manager's going to get thrown in jail for fraud. Master's going to go back and get the produce back, and he isn't going to care what anybody says. That's a possibility. That's clearly within the right of the master. And the fact that the master doesn't do that is the thing that the manager is counting on for this scheme to work. And in order for that to happen, he has got to know the character of the master. He's got to know that the master is not going to throw him in jail and the master is not going to go back and get his wheat back. Because if he throws the manager in jail, everybody is going to know that he just got cheated, even if he doesn't go back and get the wheat and the oil. So if he throws the guy in jail and doesn't go back and get his produce, then everybody knows he's been cheated. Well, that's not a good reputation to have, that you can be cheated. Similarly, if he goes back and throws the manager in jail and he gets his produce, then people are going to be all grumpy, stingy. As I said earlier, 100 measures of wheat seemed like a really good deal before, but now that it's reduced, it certainly isn't just anymore. And so everybody's going to be grumpy with him. And the manager understands his character and understands what's important to him and takes advantage of that. So the master says, very, very shrewd. Because the master recognizes what's happened. And if you pop that up a level, and you look at the earth as being the field, and us being the tenants, don't we depend on our understanding of the character of the master to get through this world? Sure. He goes to great extent in the scriptures to explain to us what his character is like, what's important to him. 
So you get guys like Abraham dickering over Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham says, well, surely the judge of the whole universe has got to be just. Surely a just man wouldn't destroy this city if there were 50 righteous people in it. Surely you wouldn't destroy it if we didn't have five of the 50, would you? Certainly a just man would not do that. You see what's going on? Abraham knows the character of God. Moses does the same thing. If you destroy him, God, people are going to say that you weren't able to do what you set out to do. You don't want to do that. That's what this parable is. What we have to do as we go through our life is we have to know what the character of the master is and we have to organize our lives around making our lives work in light of that character. And that's what this guy did. That's why he's being commended. He's been fired. He's not coming back. This is not, wow, you're really sharp. I'm going to take you. No, 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 no. That's not going to happen. What he's done is he has set himself up to be a mooch and be able to be a welcome guest in all these people's houses. And I'm sure that he will make up some kind of a story about why he is no longer the manager. Because consider, the master can't say, I fired him two hours ago. Because again, then everybody knows what just happened. So it's got to be, well, I'm leaving to spend more time with my family. Is that the standard excuse when you get fired? I'm going to go spend more time with my family or words to that effect. So it is not going to be announced that this guy's fired. He is simply going to move on to other opportunities. So what he's done is he set himself up so that he now has a really good reputation in the community going to be welcome with other people. In fact, he'd probably have a shot at another job. But not with this master. Master isn't going to trust him as far as he can throw him. Let's read it again. Verse 8. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. What he's doing is he is letting him go with a good reference. The crux of this whole thing is the manager can read the master like a book and knows how he's going to behave. So he knows, A, I've been fired. I've got a couple hours to get the books set up the way I want them and get myself some favor. Then I'm going to bring the book back and the master is going to know exactly what I did. But the master is going to give me a glowing recommendation and a letter of commendation as I go out the door because he cannot let anybody know that he's been cheated. I think the commendation for shrewdness is not between the two of them. It's between the master and the community. They are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. So the question is, how do you deal with the corrupt people in this world, your own generation? In fact, I had never thought of this before. Would the master then be a child of the light? Do you see what just happened to him? In this scenario, I would suggest that the master is a child of the light. 
and he got taken advantage of by a shrewd member of this generation. I hadn't thought of it that way, but that's good. I like that. Thank you. And the whole thing turns on the politics of the town. So you've got the farmers who are very happy now that they've got a reduction in their bill, and they think they deserve it. They're happy with the master. The master has got a good reputation. The master is rid of this dishonest guy, and it's cost him 20 measures of wheat and 50 measures of oil to get rid of this guy. Call it severance pay. So now, continuing to march here, verse 9. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. What I believe that means is the unrighteous wealth in this case is worldly wealth. In some of your translations are unrighteous mammon. The point is everything on the earth is in comparison to heaven unrighteous. So what you're supposed to do is use your resources that you have here in service of the kingdom so when the stuff of this world finally fails, you will be invited into eternal dwellings. The deal here is you have got resources on this earth. You've got resources that have been entrusted to you. How do you use them? And what you do with them is you use them to make friends for yourselves among the heavenly beings so that when this world fails on you, as it eventually will, they will welcome you into heavenly dwellings. What he's doing is he's carrying the metaphor forward of the unrighteous servant his goal is that people will receive him into their houses after he has lost his job. So that's the metaphor we're using. This guy makes use of his shrewdness in order to make friends for himself so that he will be invited into earthly dwellings. And what Yeshua then says is, use the stuff that you've been entrusted with to make friends for yourself so that when the stuff you've been entrusted with finally fails, it fails, the mammon fails, they will invite you into eternal dwellings. I am suggesting to you that the metaphor is parallel. So you have two farmers who have had their debts reduced. But those two farmers are going to talk. So what he's now done is developed for himself in the community a reputation of being a good guy. And that reputation is going to allow him then to mooch off of his neighbors for some period of time until he finds another gig. Furthermore, he probably has a decent recommendation from the old guy that finding a new gig is going to be possible. And what Yeshua then does is in parallel says, all right, now you who have been entrusted with unrighteous mammon, use that in the same way to make friends for yourself so that they will invite you into heavenly dwellings. And 
one of the things that he is going to say further on down as he's starting to take a stripe off of the Pharisees is that the worldly stuff which you are so in love with is as nothing in the kingdom of heaven. This unrighteous mammon, we're not talking about stuff you got by cheating, it's worldly stuff. Let's read the next four verses and then we'll quit. Luke 16, 10. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And this goes back to the idea of make friends for yourself with unrighteous wealth, unrighteous mammon, the stuff that you're given to manage on the earth, however much it is, if you are faithful with it, you will be entrusted with much. If you're unfaithful with it, no matter how much or how little, you will not be trusted with true riches. And of course, the true riches are the riches of the kingdom. And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? And the question becomes, what is it that is another's? And I will say to you, to quote Rush Limbaugh, it's all talent on loan from God. So all of the stuff that we're operating here is another's. Belongs to God. And at some point he will demand an accounting of it, and at some point he will collect it. That's what happens when we go toes up. If you have been faithful with that, then you will get that which is your own, which is the eternal wealth. Verse 13, no servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despised the other. You cannot serve God and money. And what we're going to do next is the Pharisees who are lovers of money. And what they're doing is they are serving money under the color of serving God. Remember we talked about that last time. In order to be honored and so forth in that particular society, you have to conform to the rules and rituals of temple life. If you're going to be called a good guy, you've got to go to synagogue or temple, you've got to do the sacrifices, you've got to tithe, you've got to do all that stuff. So they do all that stuff, but the reason that they're doing it is for temporal honor as opposed to eternal honor. And they are doing what I would describe as serving mammon under the color of God's stuff. And he's going to call them out on it in the next section. So what he's done here is he has set up the conversation that are going to happen with the Pharisees in the next section next time. That in our outline is conflict with the Pharisees over money. Where he's going to say that the law and the prophets were until John. That the, What he announces during his entire ministry is the kingdom of God is here. It's me. I'm here. And of course, they don't pay any attention to him. And so what he's talking about in the previous parable is he's here and the kingdom of God is 
if you will, how do you deal with the stuff you've been given so as to use it for the purposes of God so that you will then be welcomed into eternal tents.